Welcome to this special edition again of Wango Spaces. It will going to take a deep dive into the Kenyan Bank's Q323 results. We're delighted to have two speakers. Uh, one of our speakers could not make it, Sunil, because he's a bit unwell. So we have a replacement here. He's joining us through the Wango Capital account, um, the backup accounts. So I'm going to start with uh, Ronak. Maybe you can introduce yourself. So you've been here a couple of times, but it would be nice for people to know once again what you do and where you're based. Karibu Sanaran, Ronak. Thank you. Thanks for having me once again. Yes, my name is Ronak Gadia. I am a sell-side analyst at EFG Hermes, who many of you know is UAE-based investment bank. And obviously, we do have a local presence in Kenya as well. I work in the research department and have been looking at Frontier Bank for nearly 20 years now. For those of you who don't know, I'm originally Kenyan, although I'm based outside of Kenya right now. So started off my career in Kenya and as a result, have a long history of following and analyzing the Kenyan banks. Thanks once again for having me. Maybe, Ronak, you can start it off with a general view on how the banks performed in Q3. So maybe you can give us a bit of perspective where we left off in H1 and how generally banks are doing in your high-level banks view of how banks are doing. Sure. Before I summarize the results, what I would say is we are seeing a bit of a discrepancy in the numbers, especially between the local banks and the multinational banks, we are starting to see a bit of a divergence, both in the trajectory of earnings and the quality of the earnings that are being reported. So it makes it a bit harder to summarize what we're seeing from a sector level. But broadly, if you recollect my comments to us when we spoke after the first half results, I had indicated I was disappointed by the numbers because the banks were reporting relatively flat year-on-year earnings, or some of them are even reporting declines like KCB. That trend hasn't significantly changed, although in KCB's case, we have seen a rip-roaring quarter and they have caught up. But generally, if you look at the eight or nine largest banks in Kenya by market share, the year-on-year earnings increased by roughly about 11%, which is decent. But from where I sit, it's relatively disappointing, especially when you compare to the strong double-digit growth that we're seeing the regional banks report. And also, obviously, from a frontier perspective, we're seeing very strong growth coming through. So from that perspective, the Kenyan bank's performance remains quite disappointing. I'm sure we're going to discuss the drivers of the same in detail, but in summary, I would say we are continuing to see strong top-line growth. Banks are reporting very strong revenue growth because loan growth momentum surprisingly has remained strong despite the macro environment. We are also starting to see initial signs of banks starting to report higher margins on a Q&Q basis. And uh, from an uninteresting income perspective, fee income and trading income growth has also been quite strong. But disappointingly, the top-line growth has largely been offset by very continued strong growth in loan loss provisions, which is a bit concerning. And also from an OPEX perspective, many of these banks have disappointed with very strong and above inflation OPEX growth. To compound sort of the disappointment further, if you look below the profit line and look at the comprehensive income, again, once you include some things like fixed translation gains or losses and, and market gains, once you take into that consideration, the other comprehensive income for banks has hardly grown on a year-on-year -year basis because many of these banks have reported pretty significant mark-to-market losses on their investment portfolio given the upward shift in the Kenyan yield curves. To summarize, yeah, 
pretty disappointing quarter by the sector. We're going to maybe start to that discrepancy in terms of the Kenyan bank and the international banks. A lot of the things that made headlines was the issue of, if you look at across banks, especially the ones which are international, they've been selling off their holdings of government securities and then the local ones that are loading up a bit more. Any perspectives in terms of that? And then when you talk about quality of earnings differences, maybe you can dig a little bit deeper and let us know what's the difference. What were you looking at and what made you see like the international banks are having a better time than the local ones? So with regards to the differences in, in the approach to investment securities portfolio, I, I would say, look, like you mentioned, there's, there's a clear discrepancy. We've seen a big decline in the investments portfolio for the multi multinationals, whereas for some of the local banks, it has continued to grow. But you have to caveat that, for example, for KCB, we saw a big increase in their investment portfolio, but that's because they attracted a lot of liquidity on the back of the G2G deal. And obviously they had to park that liquidity in investment. So you've got to adjust for that. But generally, I agree with you that local banks seem to continue investing in treasuries, whereas the internationals were, were shedding. There could be a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, it could just be treasury management. As we all knew, the Kenyan yield curves was on an upward shift. Maybe the international banks may just took the view that given the potential losses that they could accrue from that portfolio, it would make sense for them to shed the load slightly to avoid some of the mark to market losses that may come through and then wait for the yields to peak before coming back in. So maybe that's just a bit of, like I said, yield curve or treasury management. The other factor there, it also could be driven by the way the government has been issuing securities. We know towards the end of the last financial year, the government was significantly behind its budget in terms of domestic borrowing. So towards the end of the financial year, and as we all recollect, they did a pretty significant infrastructure bond, which was at a very high yield and it attracted quite significant bids. Now... What, what I understand from the international banks is they have limitations on the maximum duration they can hold on their portfolio. So given that the infrastructure is relatively long-term, maybe they are not able to participate in that issue as aggressively as many of the local peers. Uh, so that also maybe made a uh, difference. And then the, maybe the third fact is, as we know, Kenya credit rating was downgraded, I believe, by Brudis earlier this year. From a risk management perspective at the group level, that may have triggered some of the multinational banks to sell down some of those securities because suddenly, because of the downgrading credit rating, they're having to hold more capital towards those securities, uh, which they may have found it uh, difficult to do. So again, maybe shedding some of that because of just the, the lower investment securities. I think the perspective that you get in the market is could be a bit of a worry in terms of, I think the headline, when you look at the Bloomberg headline, is like, Tanchat now reduces its holding on government securities. That's in the investor's mindset from what the prevalent mindset I would tell is that, okay, people are seeing a negative outlook for Kenyan debt or the Kenyan situ economic situation going forward. So that's why they're dumping. Maybe you could respond to that such kind of investors who are worried a bit about the outlook for the Kenyan economy. To be perfectly honest, I haven't had a chance to interact with the management of Tanchat. So I'm not really sure in terms of what uh, their strategy or trigger was for selling down that portfolio. As for the article suggests, you, you could maybe join the dots and say, okay, look, Stanchart has made a loss in Ghana and Zambia where they're going through a debt restructuring and maybe somebody at the group level is looking at Kenya and saying, 
Okay, Kenya is fundamental or similar to where those countries were two, three years ago, and eventually Kenya will have to go through some debt restructuring. Like I said, I, I haven't spoken to them. I'm not sure if that is the reason. Um, from a debt perspective, yes, we have spoken quite a bit about how Kenya's debt trajectory has been on an upward trend. It has been a bit of concerning. The debt service ratios have been increasing. That being said, the debt to GDP ratio does seem to be stabilizing at 70% during the last few months of the previous administration and obviously under the Ruto uh, administration as well, has taken steps to reduce the deficit. If you look at the deficit, it had peaked at, I think, around 7.5%, 2-3 financial years ago. And it, it is now below 5%. And given the measures that the government is taking, it does seem to be that it is on a downward trend. Certainly, when you look at it from primary deficit perspective, that the primary deficit, excluding the interest payments, isn't that significant anymore. If that momentum continues, if they continue to narrow the, the deficit, and we don't see further economic shocks, obviously there's a lot of uncertainties uh, around that because of global factors, then I think the debt level should stabilize at around the 70% level and start to improve. So I think that that's the message A, we're getting from the government. That's also the message we get from the IMS uh, reviews. We obviously saw the, the recent uh, rollover or uh, increase in, in, in the IMS program facility as well. And also from an in-house perspective, our base case scenario isn't that uh, Kenya will default. I think top of mind is uh, the $2 billion a dollar payment, there is a eurobond payment that's due in June next year. But I think the comments uh, from Treasury, from the IMF is mostly that they are very committed in, in terms of making this not turn into a liquidity problem uh, or a solvency issue with the day. So they, they have enough resources to be able to offset this payment. That's the message at least we get from the government. With, with, with the enlarged uh, IMF facility, hopefully which they can draw down maybe later this year or earlier next year, I'm not sure of the time. And that obviously should boost their reserves, further improve the confidence that the country will be able to repay those loans. So yeah, I think if we get that signal, because up until now, I think over the last 18 months, the economic advisors under President Ruto have been very clear that they will pay back, but there has been a lot of skepticism around that. And rightly, given the fragile nature of reserves, the wide current account deficit. But if those facilities come through and we start to see them either pay off the whole euro bond or maybe make an early repayment on our partial repayment, then I think actions will speak louder than words. And that could be a pretty positive signal as far as the solvency of the country's concerned. Just wanted to move on to a few topics here. And there. So let's start with loan books and how the loan loss provisions look like across banks from your perspective for Q3. As I mentioned before, I guess one of the disappointing drivers for the banks is loan loss provisions. Firstly, from an asset quality perspective, we're seeing a slight uh, divergence in particular for the international banks and, and for some of the local banks as well, for example. Uh, on a Q&Q basis, we are starting to see NPLs somewhat, in absolute terms, stabilize. The NPL ratio actually is declining because the denominator has continued to grow. But uh, in contrast, the NPL ratio for some of the local banks, both in absolute, both the absolute NPLs and the NPL ratio has increased. So as before, there's a bit of a discrepancy. Where there is no difference is that provisions across all the banks have continued to increase. So whether or not NPLs for the bank has stabilized or not, most banks, again, maybe the exception there being NCBA, have reported continued increase in borrowers' provisions. Now, that is partly because NPLs have continued to increase, 
but also banks are building up their NPL cover, which historically we have maintained have been quite low. From that perspective, it's good to see that the banks are building up their NPL cover. But given the, the low starting point, we do think the, the low loss provisions will remain elevated in the short term because of the build up in NPLs and because banks will need to build up the NPL cover. For someone who's new to this, um, could you maybe give it uh, context, what are NPLs and provisions and how they follow each other in terms of why would banks increase provisions during this period of time? Say I uh, borrowed a thousand shillings from bank XYZ, but for whatever reason, I am unable to repay that loan because I'll be laid off or because suddenly my disposable income has come under a lot more pressure because of the devaluation of a shilling, inflation, higher taxes, whatnot. So by XYZ, initially will have a discussion with me that, okay, you're unable to repay, how about we restructure the loan and maybe reduce your interest rates or increase the tenor of the loan so that your monthly repayment reduces it and it becomes more affordable. So that I think will be initial discussion between the bank and the borrower. If that fails, I'm completely unable to repay whatever reason. Then eventually after days, the bike will cross our past you. That's under the CBK regulations. Once I stop making payments or I show signs of default under IFRS uh, 9, that law will move from what they call stage one classification to stage two classification. So there's a credit event. And if I'm still unable to repay that loan, then eventually that loan will be classified as stage three uh, loan, which effectively becomes a non-performing loan. So on the back of that, bike will then have to decide how much provisions they make under IFRS 9. They are required to make provisions regardless of which classification that law is in. So even if it is on stage one, the bike is required to make some provisions on us because there's a possibility that I made default. And the loan moves from stage one to stage two. The level of provisioning has to increase because suddenly there's a much higher probability that I may default. And then as it loads from stage two to stage three, uh, back has to almost make provisions for it. Now, when it, when it moves to stage three category under RFRS, the bank can take into consideration their potential recovery. So even the time of borrowing back loan, I provided some collateral, maybe my car or piece of land or whatever, then the bank can take into consideration the value of that car. And in which case, does it have to make equal provision of 1,000 shillings for that? It could say, okay, it's collateral is worth 500 shillings. So we only have to make provisions of around, so we to make provisions of around 500 shillings. That's the amount of loss made result. That's a good explanation. I'll give you a bit of a break as a chat with this. Maybe you could introduce yourself and then let us know your high-level view of bank signings in Q3. My name is Davis Kadinji. I'm a research analyst with Sterling Capital. Yes, as far as banks are concerned in Q3, just uh, echoing a lot of what Ronak has said, there has been material weakness with regard to Kenyan banking unit performance. You'll find some strain within KCP Bank, some strain within Equity Bank Kenya and the like. Whereas other subsidiaries within the region have been performing quite robustly. Now, the key drivers of that underperformance has a lot to do with the significant uptick in loan loss provisions just because of how NPLs are becoming elevated. And then another factor is that the cost of funding is also going up quite a bit, quite materially, actually. Yeah, so now banks are really struggling, They're actually competing with the government to attract capital toward them because yeah, you can imagine if you have 
an IFP going for 18%, almost 18% uh, tax-free, why would you give your money to a bank? That tends to be the competition. So banks really have to ramp up how much they're giving out. And this, of course, affects the cost of funds. So because of that strain, you're seeing it trickling down at the operational level. You have some banks recording uh, quite muted operational growth, I believe, Copbank, DTB, uh, NCBA. So that that's the trend we've largely been seeing as at Q3. And in terms of provisions, one of the banks that is most affected in terms of its share price being down significantly, this year is KCB. And the, the reason why has been mostly investors being worried about NPL. So maybe you can give us a bit of perspective on how that is doing and what investors are thinking and what are some of the measures that the bank is taking in terms of uh, dealing with NPL. Just to give a bit of context. So Paul Russo was actually brought in when Chase Bank had the issues a few years back. And from what we hear is that he'd personally actually call and reach out to clients just to try and walk with them in a sense and to reduce that NPL stock. He was also there as far as NBK is concerned when they inherited the book. NBK and PLs were roughly around 55%. They've come down quite a bit to should be slightly above 30 last I checked. So currently they do have a program like they're really ramping up the collection of co collateral that's backing these loans. So that non-performing stock. And on top of that, they're also ramping up write-offs a bit just to clean up the book. From what they've echoed, their main focus would be the absolute non-performing stock rather than the NPL ratio. Because of course, you can reduce your NPL ratio if you just ramp up your lending because your base is expanding quite significantly. But the actual stock is also increasing in tandem. But more or less, the, the base expansion is offsetting the increase in the NPL stock. But for them, they're just seeking to reduce that absolute figure. Now, as far as the share price goes, just the fact that the NPLs shot up in the material nature that they did, as at Q2, if I remember correctly, and had between 170 and 182 billion thereabouts, the next closest bank was equity with slightly below 100 billion worth of NPL. You can imagine how jittery you get as a shareholder. The sense that we are getting is that because of how thinly capitalized they are, they really need to read it to recapitalize KCB Kenya as well as NBK. Now, as a shareholder, you, you view that with uh, a particular pinch of salt because as you engage with management more, the sentiment is that it could go as far as a rights issue. So of course, with the rights issue, you, the value of your shareholding goes down quite a bit. Yeah, so investors just taking all these considerations into account and also the fact that going forward, the dividend is likely to be muted. This sold off the stock uh, across the board. That's both retail, institutional and the like. So I'm looking at the chart of NPLs for Q3 and I've seen a significant jump, almost doubling for equity bank in gross NPLs. Do you know that also? Yes. So... As far as equity is concerned, so these are two particular things. They, they are seeing significant strain on sectors such as manufacturing. And then also because of the stress tests that they were making, they were looking at particular accounts. What I believe they're communicating is that does this, they make overlays on the performing book. So they look at the loan book that is still performing, so still stage one, and then make an assessment and see, okay, we do see possibilities of strain. And so we'll increase our provisioning, just preempting further strain, even on the performing books. I believe equity did take a, a similar view. So a large portion of it was SMEs and SME NPLs on a year on year basis should have gone up from roughly 13% to 22%. We were yet to confirm or I don't believe any analysts confirmed whether this was due to the three year moratorium that 
equity group had given to particular non-performing accounts. So since COVID and the like, and just the expiry of that period. So yet to confirm that particular aspect, but that could be a contributor. So largely driven by SMEs, and then they took a view to just even make overlays on the, the performing book. We're seeing at the sector level, the NPL ratio continue to tick up. I think it probably ended last quarter at around 14%. It's now uh, 15%. And not totally surprising, really, like Davis mentioned, maybe what we're seeing is the, the impact of uh, some of the moratoriums on those COVID-related loans expiring. So the effect of that, at the same time, the operating environment has been tough. We've seen the shilling has been on a, on a free fall, essentially. Inflation has remained relatively high. Take on pay has also reduced because of the increase in tax rates. So on the back of that, totally surprising to see uh, NPL numbers increase. From and, and just to add to that, government pending bills, which I think has been highlighted as the single biggest driver of NPLs by management from latest disclosures, we know that number is as high as 600 billion shillings, which is pretty significant. As I mentioned before, I, I think what is even more notable is that level of provisions are increasing faster than the level of NPLs, which also tells you something else about how these banks were provisioning. Back in the day, they were a bit more optimistic on the recovery of the collateral that was being provided by borrowers. But with the real estate market looking a bit wobbly, it seems like banks may have revalued their real estate portfolios and on the back of that decided that they need to make a bit more provisions on this NPL. So that's what we're also seeing come through. If you're in the audience and you want to participate, you have a couple of options. One of which is you can send us a DM in terms of the question that you have, or you can put your question below our pinned tweets, and then you can also request to speak. So a quick question I had was on the role of the subsidiaries in terms of earnings, especially for the Kenyan units that have reached across the East African and just across the region to even Congo. What's your perspective and takeaways in terms of subsidiary performances? against the, the Kenyan outfit. I think uh, the subsidiaries have really come to the rescue for some of this smile because, for example, if you look at uh, Equity Bank's performance for the Kenyan subsidiary, their net income actually declined quite significantly. But at the group level, we saw their earnings increase by about 3.7%. And that's really driven by a very strong performance across all their subsidiaries. In particular, you highlighted uh, DRC that has become extremely meaningful for equity. Its subsidiaries now contributing almost uh, 30% of group assets, income, revenue, and it continues to compound at very strong double-digit rates on a year-on-year basis. Consistently, we're seeing growth rates in excess of um, 50%. That is partly being driven by the low penetration rates in the DRC banks benefiting from that increasing penetration uh, levels and also DRC at the same time benefiting from high commodity prices. Well, yeah, overall, uh, the performance of subsidiaries outside of Kenya, particularly uh, for KCB and equity was actually relatively impressive. And I think that's what really came to the rescue for these two banks, because if they weren't there, then I think on a year-year basis, we would have seen some pretty significant declines to those two banks. So an interesting quote I saw from the KCB CEO saying uh, that they kind of regret paying for TMB by using cash from the Kenyan outfit. I was wondering, like, in terms of acquisitions um, going forward, should banks be a bit more moderate in terms of using their own resources like to make purchases of new companies that they want to acquire? 
Did, did you see the comments or what do you make of that? I must admit I, I haven't been looking at the full um, comment. Oh, I, I don't, I don't, but what, what I would say is I wouldn't be totally surprised if she made remarks to that extent because as Davis mentioned earlier, KCB's capital position is looking quite vulnerable. It has remained vulnerable since the acquisition of TNB. 3Q last year, if you look at KCB's capital position, they were comfortably above the regulatory minimum, both at KCB Kenya and KCB Group. But because of the acquisition of TMB, they had to upstream some capital from KCB Kenya to Group, which then eventually acquired TMB. And subsequent to that, we are now seeing KCB Kenya's capital position is under a lot of pressure. So in hindsight, I think given the constraints that he is seeing on his capital, maybe he thought a better way of completing that acquisition may have been doing a, either share swap, use some of the group shares to do the acquisition, or maybe do a combination of it. Use the group shares as well as some, some cash, depending on obviously what the buyer wants as well. Yes. Uh, Davis, any comments on that? Yeah, uh, just echoing again on what is saying. So particularly KCB and Equity, both of them actually announced a year-on-year reduction in the after-tax profit, at least at the bank level. That's KCB Bank Kenya and uh, Equity Bank Kenya. So the subsidiaries played a significant role, especially the DRC ones, even trade finance aspects therein. An interesting tidbit is that the subsidiaries in the DRC can loan to the government within the DRC at 9-10% on the dollar, which is significantly attractive. So that's helping to beef up those revenue lines. And there's a lot of focus on trade finance because particularly in those regions, trade finance has to be a a popular thing. And that's the main focus line, at least as far as equity and KCP go. I think that's the little I can add on that. I was thinking in terms of CAPEX or OPEX across the balance that you're analyzing, how does that look like? That's operating costs and uh, the operating income side. That was the, I guess, the other disappointing aspect that I referenced earlier. As I mentioned before, it was a strong top line growth, but that was offset by increasing provisions and, and growth in, in OPEX. And again, we're seeing pretty strong growth in operating expenses across most of the bank. Again, this is not too much of a surprise. Typically, these banks have significant dollar-denominated costs, particularly related to their IT and the consultancy expenses and whatnot. And given the performance of the shilling, obviously those costs have increased quite substantially when you convert to shilling, which is the currency that this bank's reported. At the same time, inflation has continued to go up. I think these banks are having to make some adjustments on salaries as well, given the cost of living issues and, and whatnot. So just driven by, uh, I'd say, macro factors, we're seeing pretty strong impact on banks' operating expenses. In addition to that, Many of the banks do seem to be investing quite heavily on their IT systems as well. This was a factor that was mentioned by KCB, Equity, Stanbic. They're all upgrading their IT systems. And again, this is a double whammy because on the one hand, you're obviously investing over systems and this affects related costs as well. So uh, those costs are uh, increasing given the, the shilling. And then ap- apart from that, some of the banks are also incurring some one-off costs again in in particular, if you look at KCB during the nine month numbers, they reported some significant one-off expenses related to a legacy claim at NB, which as we know, went against them earlier this year. There were also some one-off redundancy expenses. And finally, on top of all that, again, going back to this theme of regional subsidiaries, the, the banks that have a regional presence continue to invest quite aggressively within those spaces, again, in particular within DRC, the penetration rate is low. The banks would like to grow that, but for them to grow that, they need to invest 
they need to invest in the network, they need to invest in people, they need to invest on on products. So that also is driving the overall OPEX growth. So net net broadly across you know the bikes that we see, OPEX growth was very strong, driven by macroeconomic factors, investments on their IT system, investments outside Kenya, and uh, obviously the the one of costs uh, such as those applications. Davis, any perspectives on that? Yes. So if I just add a bit on equity, you'll notice that within the Tanzanian as well as the Ugandan subsidiary that costs actually out revenue growth on a year-on-year basis. Now, the main reason for this was basically an increase in management costs as well as legal costs. So due to the fact that they are ramping up recoveries, there are a lot of legal costs associated with that. So that on the whole, drove up OPEX. In my view, the main driver, of course, was loan loss provisioning. So a large number of banks from way back have really been under provisioning. If I'm not mistaken, IFRS should be roughly around 70%, whereas TBK 60%, or albeit IFRS allows you to take the discounted value of your securities into account, CBK does not. But yeah, there has been a significant ramp up in provisions and that will continue into the full year. You have a very interesting trend with some banks where as at Q4, there's a significant hike up in provision. So a bank that we've seen this constantly is, for example, DTB. Last year is the only year that they didn't ramp up provisions and announce a loss in the fourth quarter. So they always announce a loss in the fourth quarter, at least since COVID. The other bank I'd expect to ramp up provisions is NCBA. So there's been some weakness therein. Actually, if they had increased their provisions, the year-on-year after-tax profit would have have been a decline rather than an increase. The the only thing that largely saved them is what they ended up paying in taxes. So tax regime being much lower than the 30% that they would normally pay. So for Q4, I expect OPEX to go up quite a bit, largely driven by loan-loss provisioning. In terms of quality of earnings from the rising kind of interest rates, the bulk's benefiting and how is it looking like on the non-funded income side? Maybe, Davis, you can start. Okay. As far as NFI is concerned now, that's why you tend to have some interesting trends. As you saw for earlier quarters in the year, NFI was, that's non-funded income, was largely driven by FX income. So that's going up quite significantly just because of the mismatches that we have, the dollar shortages or dollar imbalances within the market. Now, CBK did make some interventions. For example, they allowed banks to have a two-way quoting system whereby rather than, so before what it would be, it would be over the counter. You're basically negotiating a rate between banks. Now it would be a two-way quoting system and a few other interventions such as allowing both regional and global banks to trade within the interbank FX market. So ideally, this should have improved things. And we started seeing that as early as Q2, at least on NCBA's financials. But in Q3, what banks are largely communicating is that they have a lack of liquidity. You can imagine that the banks have to source for these dollars somewhere. And then, of course, sell these dollars off to clients and the like. But then that would leave them in an open position that would be negative for them if the currency depreciation ramped up. So that's what has been communicated in this quarter, that the declines we've been seeing across the board, declines of FX income, and that's ultimately affecting the declines are largely driven by a lack of liquidity within the market. So banks having difficulty in sourcing dollars, but margins still remain the same and volumes still remain largely the same. The impacts as far as bank earnings go, you have a bank like NCBA, NFI to NII for NCBA, tends to be almost nearing 50-50. I believe last year it was almost at a 50-50 split, just the contribution to operating income. 
in light of that, just how large the contribution NFI is to uh, operating income, you'll see that because of the declines in the FX income, it's affecting NFI and ultimately affecting their earnings. So that's why at the operating level, I believe they went up roughly 2%, less than 5%, if I recall correctly. You'll see that trend continuing into Q4. Some of the questions that people had is consider a bank like Equity as well as KCB. Why don't they source the liquidity from their subsidiaries within the, the DRC? However, you have to think about the opportunity cost. So in the DRC, you can make 9% in dollar terms lending to the government. And then because of how sticky their deposits are, they're not really affected by interest rates. So global rates have gone up, but their clients still stay with them because the clients value service vis-a-vis higher yields. That means that the NIMS on those accounts are quite material. When you consider these two things, it makes more sense for them to loan out as well as to the government as well as to the retail market segment and also to corporate market segment just for that customer retention and the like. That was the answer to that particular question. Why Let's say KCB and equity don't necessarily tap into the liquid from a subsidiary such as DRC. Yeah. So for Q4, what you should expect is these issues to continue. So largely affects income to come down uh, on the back of strained liquidity as well as uh, some overall improvement within the market. But we expect these conditions, so just the dollar imbalances to continue into 2024. That's when at least we do foresee some form of stabilization. And ultimately, that means that bank earnings will come down at least on the NFI lines and FX incomes to be specific. Ironic. We have some perspectives on that. And this is a reminder, if you are in the audience and you also want to participate, you can just type your question below the pinned tweet. Or you can use hashtag Mongo Spaces. Or you can DM us and the third option is to request to speak. And then allow you to speak to ask your question. Over to you, Ronald. And then we'll check a few questions from the audience. From a margin perspective, I think it was a bit of an encouraging future. On a, on a yearly basis, we're still seeing margins at the nine-month level table on lower than where they were last year because funding costs have increased and banks haven't yet been able to pass through those higher funding costs to borrowers or hold their portfolio at higher yields. But on a quarter on quarter basis, comparing 3Q to 2Q, at least for some of the banks that I look at closely, KCB, Equity, uh, to some extent, uh, Compton and CBH, we are seeing a quarterly improvement in, in NIMS. That is being driven by the IELTS on investment securities portfolio coming through. Too much of a surprise given the significant shift up in the yield curves over the last few months. But also, I would say encouragingly, it, it increases the burden for many of the listeners who borrow from banks. But from a bank's perspective, we have seen the yields increase, the borrowing rates increase, and, and that is translating to higher margins. Now, what is interesting speaking to this bank is that most of them now do have their risk pricing models approved, but yet haven't been able to implement that fully because they were a bit concerned about the potential impact on asset quality. And I think that concern will remain valid for the next few quarters until the economy stabilizes. But once we're on the most stable footing, I think you will see banks starting to implement those risk pricing models completely 100% and that should lead to further margin expansions. From an end perspective, encouraging and hopefully we see that trend continue in Q4. From a non-interest revenue perspective, also again, relatively 
decent quarter. Free income growth was quite strong across most of the banks. Now, there you've got to consider, firstly, earlier this year, if you recollect, the central bank reintroduced fees between mobile wallets and bank accounts and vice versa. On the back of that, we have seen some elasticity on transaction volumes. Uh, for example, at Equity Bank, we saw some of the digital volumes decline. But net, I think it is really resulted in significant uptick in fees from that product. At the same time, mobile loans have continued to grow quite aggressively. Again, KCB, Co-op, and even Equity Bank seems to be joining the party. So and on the back of that, we're seeing good growth coming from that. So fee income growth, I think, has remained pretty strong. And I think that trend should continue into Q4. Trading income, to be fair, it has surprised me a bit. On a year-on-year basis, for most of the banks, we have seen the trading income increase. And I'm surprised by that because the comparative figure for last year was relatively high because the banks are making pretty significant spreads, uh, especially in the run-up to the election and, and also immediately after. With the actions taken by the central bank earlier this year and when the spreads reducing, I would have thought that we would have seen a, a more significant drop in, in trading income during 3Q, but they've remained relatively robust. Speaking to some of the treasurers, I get the sense that the, the FX market does still remain a bit dysfunctional, but the spreads are now a bit lower than where they used to be earlier in the year and maybe also a quarter ago. I think those effects, think of like David's mentioned, I think should start to ease up. I'm going into Q4 and and, and uh, 22. Yeah, I think so. the Treasury CS yesterday was saying that they reduced the queue in terms of getting dollars uh, from a couple of months to a couple of weeks now. So they took a few questions from the audience. So one question here is for Ronak. What's your perspective on Stanchat and uh, Stanbik's Q3 results in terms of quality of earnings? I'm not so sure you follow them. Uh, so maybe you can tell the audience which specific banks you usually follow. Uh, and then maybe you can respond just generally in terms of quality of earnings um, for those two if you've checked them out. I was really covered equity KCB, CBA, and, and Stanbeck. So happy to comment on that. Uh, but obviously, we do keep an eye on all, all the banks given this, between these banks. In terms of quality of performance, I think Stanbeck actually really stands out, not just relative to Stanchart, but within the peer group. So on a at the nine-month level, we saw the earnings increase by around 3%. And that really was being driven by positive momentum across most of their uh, KPIs. Now, long growth was a bit uh, disappointing. It increased by only 5 or 6% year on year. But again, that, you have to take it in the context of the G2G deal, where previously they used to play a big part in the open tender system. That portfolio has had to be restructured by the G2G. But taking away the long growth, which is still decent, they've been able to grow and expand their margins. This is obviously because of the high rate environment, but also because of the significant work that the bank has done in reducing or increasing its CASA deposits, cheap deposits, which is starting to come through in terms of higher margins. As I highlighted earlier, it's all on the banks, but also for Stambik, we, we saw some good growth in fee income. Trading income growth continues to remain strong. Again, from Stambik's perspective, this is not just because of the margins uh, or on the spreads that they get on the FX but also because of the volume, because they do seem to have decent market share within that space. On the fee income side, I, I mentioned some of the drivers, but there were also some one-off factors because they had a pretty significant investment banking deal earlier this year, which I helped reach that line item. So net, 
What we have seen from Stanbeck uh, over the last two, three years is that underlying ROE has, has been trending upwards. That trend continued at, at the nine-month level. And I think given some of the initiatives that the bank is, is implementing, I think we will continue to see that uh, momentum. At the same time, question was of the quality. Stanbeck is one of the banks that have reported lower NPLs on a year-on-year basis, slightly up on a Q&Q basis, but their NPL ratio is now firmly below 10%, much lower than the sector average. They have done a lot of work in recovering some of the corporate NPLs, and it seems like they're confident of sustaining the hit at that level. So from that perspective, again, Stanbeck starting to stand out. Stanchart, I don't really follow Stanchart. As always, the trend has the, the steady as they go. The earnings increase by around 12%. You saw a bit of modest growth coming through on the balance sheet, which again is far for the course because they, over the last five, six years, they haven't been very aggressive in terms of their balance sheet growth. But at the same time, like some of the peers, they're able to achieve slightly higher margins and also benefit quite a bit on the trading income side. Now, Davis, do you have any points to add on that as I take um, the next question from the audience? I, I, I won't cover Stanbeck. Maybe I can touch a bit on Stanchart. So as, as has been mentioned by Ronak, they really haven't been expanding their asset base much over the past few years. Actually, on government securities, you'd largely see it stay roughly around that 100 billion mark uh, until last year, whereby it has been coming down. Now, something worth mentioning in that regard is that at the group level, they have mentioned that they are undertaking what they say is a de-risking exercise or rather risk optimization exercise. So that means that they're reducing their risk-weighted assets. Risk-weighted assets of three tiers, that's operational, sovereign, and credit risk. Now, while in Kenya, risk weighting on government securities, let's say, so for a bank buying into government securities is 0%, the risk weighting on that, it's viewed as quote-unquote risk-free. At the group level, the risk weighting is much higher. If I use one of their peers as a proxy of sorts, it should be around about 20%, just using Basel three and the likes could be one of the explanations as to why they have been reducing their holdings of government securities because with each subsequent credit downgrade, there have been the asset mix changes. So if the sovereign is being downgraded, the asset mix changes. But you notice that their yields, of course, remain significantly high. And then they don't particularly look to attract sticky deposits. They're able to attract, their cost of funding is roughly around 1%, just exceedingly low. And the, the reason for this is because they can easily source cheap funding from the group level. So they don't necessarily need to go and increase the interest rates on their deposits. Income for the bank should remain elevated going forward. They're still enjoying significant gains from NFI. The major risk I'd say with Stanchart is the litigation case, which came as a surprise, I believe, to everyone. So just for context, for those who don't know, there's, there's a particular case that Stanchart had with some of its pensioners and it lost at the tribunal level, I believe, as well as at the high court, if, if I'm not mistaken. And so at the high court level, they're told to pay 30 billion. Now, to contextualize, that's roughly two years worth of earnings. That brought some jitteriness as far as I know particular investors are concerned because that would mean a dividend suspension and people invest in the counter particularly for dividends. But if you look at Q3, at least if you use that as a pointer to what they're trying to communicate, they did pay out a dividend and didn't ramp up provisions. They haven't taken provisions for to pay out a particular litigation case if you look at the annual statements. That means that, or at least that gives you a sense that the bank may not be viewing this as a material risk factor 
but it's just something that investors should be cognizant of and mindful of. I'm sure we'll get an update of this quite soon, but should the case be escalated and then Stanchart does eventually lose it, what that means is that they won't pay dividends for a significant period of time. And that means that the share price is likely to go down quite a bit because you're considering the, the dividend yields therein is around 15, 16%, at least if you project uh, what the dividend payout is likely to be for this particular year or, or use last year as a backdrop of, or a guide of sorts. That's just something to be mindful of. Otherwise, doing quite okay, in my opinion. And in terms of the perspective for Q4, because that's when our banks will be reporting earnings and especially dividends, and investors are very keen on that. My perspective so far, especially given the capital ratios and some of the issues that KCB has been having, I, I bet that that's one of the banks that you don't expect dividends for. Looking at Q3, the one of the banks that gave out dividends was, yes, Tanchets. Um, so... When you look at Q4 going forward, what are your expectations for you guys in terms of dividend payment, in terms of what investors should expect in that regard? You can start with you, Ronak. With the exception of case, looking at the capital positions for all the other banks, they remain relatively comfortable. And I think unless you see a significant shock in Q4 or the auditor requires them to make some losses, provisions, et cetera, I, I, I think by and large, these banks should be able to sustain their payout ratios at least at the same level as FY22. From that perspective, I will be surprised if we see a drop in dividend per share for any of the enlisted banks. Obviously, the exception there being QCB, as we've discussed before, their capital ratios seem quite tight. And I think on the call this week, the CFO indicated that they may not pay a dividend sale. Davis, your perspective on the same? Yes. So we expect most banks say for KCB to retain the dividends that they paid out last year. But we also do expect that for Stanchat as well as ABSA, they'll increase their dividend payouts. So for Stanchat, on top of the six interim, should give a final of between 18 and 20. Stanchat historically does pay out 80% of earnings this year, likely to pay out 70 because they need to pay back a particular tier two line item of debt using retained earnings. So that the payout ratio roughly 70%, but we do expect final dividend between 18 and 20. Whereas for ABSA, final dividend, if you add the interim, should come to round about 1.5 in, in our view. For the rest of the banks, largely flat, save for KCB, which should be a year-on-year reduction. I think this is more for what you talked about, Ronak. Does the various stages dictated by delay in terms of day, or are they subject to each bank's policy? I think the stages in terms of PLs. In terms of central bank rules, if, if a loan is uh, in default for 90 days, it's classified as past due. Uh, then if it goes beyond 360 days, it's classified as, as not forming and uh, the the banks have to make uh, provisions accordingly as it, as it passes, passes through various classifications. In terms of IFRS management, they have the ability to, to overlay their uh, view on the loan on top of the actual performance. So if, if, if a borrower has missed out a payment, typically it would be classified into stage two, but it's not necessary for it to be moved into stage three because bank may have had a discussion with the borrower and understood why the borrower has defaulted or is not making its payments, but the bank may still be comfortable that in the long term, that the borrower will eventually make payments. So from that perspective, the bank could overrule the IFRS rules and continue to hold that loan as a stage two loan because they're confident eventually repayment will be made. There's no sort of hard rule on IFRS in terms of number of days for a loan to be 
then perform make for it to move through various classifications. One of the suggestions in terms of dealing with NPLs, I think from KCB Bank, the CEO is on creating a subsidiary and then taking up all the bad debts so that's from the bank and loading them on the subsidiary. I think one of the options is about reviving one of their previous subsidiary called SNL mortgages. Is that something that is feasible in terms of dealing with NPLs? I think it's called creating a good bank, bad bank kind of division. Is that something that is feasible? No, no. If there's a system-wide NPL issue, then the regulator may need to step in and create a bad bank. And then the banks can sell their NPL portfolios to that bank. So effectively cleaning up the asset quality for the sector, arguably, given how by the NPL ratio for the sector is and how, how persistent it has been at that level. You could argue Kenya should be looking at that solutions, but I think the central bank right now has really has other priorities and maybe they think this NPL ratio is not a systemic challenge right now and eventually will ease up. So that's one model. And then the other model is the bank. Uh, within a bank itself, it can set up a good bank, bad bank. In recent years, we saw, I think, EcoBank out of West Africa adopt a similar model where they transferred a significant proportion of their NPLs into a separate um, subsidiary, which like I said, it's feasible. Obviously, there are some regulatory hurdles um, that the bank would have to meet, but it can be durable. And I think it it could be positive because when effectively you're creating a more specialized unit to handle those and uh, make whatever necessary provisions and follow up with the recoveries uh, wherever necessary. So it becomes a much more specialized unit managed by a specialized team. And at the same time, it takes away the NPLs from the main balance sheet, which is what we always now look at. So it cleans up the, the, the balance sheet of the main subsidiary and going forward, it gives them a clean bill, bill of health and then therefore enables that bank to focus on its core mandate or core strategy, which is continue growing and not having to worry about those uh, asset quality challenges. So it's feasible. I think it is. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see if KCB continues down that route. Davis, any comments on that? Not particularly. I think Kronak uh, covered all of it. There's someone here asking your perspective on USD liquidity, I think across banks so far this year. I think we covered that a little bit when we talked about like it's easing. It's not best, but it's getting better. I think that's what we agreed upon. Right, Jonah? Yeah, agree. It's still a challenge. You can clearly see that the supply and demand is in. How can you see it? We, it's anecdotally, when you speak to some local manufacturers, they would tell you that they're struggling to access their dollars. And I, I think you referenced the central bank governor's comments earlier that the, uh, the, the queue has declined from several months to a couple of weeks, but it still means that there is a queue. Back in the day, I think if you go back 12, 18 months ago, there was no queue. So that's one. The other one is we've seen the, the the, the spreads, while they have narrowed, they used to be as high as eight ten shillings. Now it's three shillings. So the spread between the official rate and the interbank rate, but given that spread still remains still quite significant, again suggests that the interbank market is not uh, functional, and obviously U.S. demand supply is not quite balanced. And yeah, the third factor is just yeah, persistent uh, depreciation of the shilling. Yes, change lasting NPLs management and the effect of tier one capitals. Does it, do NPL directly affect this tier one capital, especially 
for KCB equity. That's what somebody is asking here. The NPL management. They affect tier one capital to the extent that they reduce the amount of profits that a bank is making because the bank has to make provisions on these loans, which means they're not generating enough. That reduces the amount of profits that they're generating, which then that reduces the amount of capital or, or reduces the capital growth for the subsidiary. Because remember, the profits that the bank is generating, it pays a portion of that as dividends. And then the rest it keeps, which goes into capital, which is then used to reinvest into the business, either it's to grow the loan book or grow those, the, the, the bank in other areas. So if it's not generating those profits, then it's not generating as much capital, which then constrains the bank's growth strategy going forward. At this point, I give you gentlemen the opportunity to maybe give us perspective on what's your outlook for banks as you go into now Q4, what your expectations of a Q4 and the full year. Maybe we can start with Davis and then Rod. Uh, thanks. So as far as names go, we tend to see dif- differing trends just depending on the, how, the CASA mix, basically. So for banks that have non-sticky deposits, so CASA, current account savings account, those accounts that basically are, are much stickier in this rising interest rate environment, they don't demand that much of a premium in terms of return. Banks with higher CASA ratios should ideally have higher NIMS because they're not necessarily increasing the amount that they are paying out on their deposits, their cost of funds are not ramping up as significantly as other tier one banks. So a good example of that is Stanchat. We expect that banks such as those should have significantly expanding NIMS. So that's on the net interest income line. We see banks as being a bit more cautious as far as lending is concerned, just trying to especially predicated on how the NPLs are looking. Going forward, banks across the board will tell you, save for equity or save for equity as well as KCB. Largely, a, lo- a large proportion of the banks will tell you that NPLs are likely to continue trickling upwards. Some of them will tell you that NPLs have peaked, but the consensus that you tend to get from the market is that NPLs will continue going up just given the difficult macro environment. So what this means is that you have two issues. So you have a level of difficulty in attracting deposits that you can then lend forward. And then also you want to be a bit cautious as far as your lending is concerned. That's why as much as many banks have received approval for their risk-based pricing, you note that they're not necessarily applying it toward the whole book just all at once because they fear that the asset quality will deteriorate quite materially. So you have those different mixes that affect different banks differently. If I just touch on the banks at least that I cover, I would expect that NIMS, particularly for at least equity, does give guidance. They do see some level of compression as far as that is concerned. And that's largely owing to the fact that the USD portion of debts that they have, the interest rates on that have gone up quite a bit. You have LIBOR and SOFR have gone up almost 500 bips, if, if not 500 bips in the past two years and the like. So that will lead to some margin compression. Banks which have USD exposure, margin compression, they're in, and they're not necessarily pushing to offset that by basically increasing interest rates on their entire loan book. 
So for Q4, you will see some level of margin compression. But as NPLs begin to improve, hopefully from next year, as these recoveries ramp up and the like, banks will, of course, increase in their confidence to lend out more in so doing. As well, that coupled with the expectation that interest rates should ideally begin coming down from half to next year, you should see NIM starting to pick up quite a bit. That's in my view. So that's for NII. NFI is mixed trends across the board, but largely uh, a lot of people enjoying that return of fees. But this is being offset by just the lower margins on that FX income, the liquidity issues that they're facing and the like. Expect costs to go up across the board. Again, costs associated with recoveries, costs associated with employee retention, but more so loan loss provisioning. So this should affect earnings across the board. And again, affecting different banks differently. But on the whole, you should expect that uh, OPEX should go up, meaning that bottom line profits will be largely flat. So there are particular banks now, banks such as COP and NCBA, I would actually expect them to ramp up their level of provisioning, NCBA in particular. That means that year over year, they should ideally announce either flat profits or a decline in profits. That's for NCBA, for COP Bank, flat profits. For banks like Stanchart, it will be an uptick. Another bank like ABSA, which is doing quite well, just given the volume and margin expansion that they have on their loan book, they should do quite well on the whole. Those are my different thoughts on a few different banks. Just a difficult macro environment going into Q4. But through 2024, just depending on how interest rates are set to evolve, you should see some level of improvement on earnings. But for this year, expect earnings to be quite flat, at least in a general sense, say for banks like ABSA, Stanbic, and the like. And then earnings will really depend on how they play around with the level of loan loss provisioning as at Q4. But I wouldn't be surprised if some banks had ramped it up quite significantly, which meant a year-on-year reduction in, in their profits. How about you, Ronak? Yes, he summarized in quite detail. To me, from a, broadly, I think the trend will be similar to what we saw at the nine-month level. I don't see a significant improvement. So earnings, I think, will continue to remain either in the single digits or maybe lower double digits for most banks. We will continue to see incremental loan growth across most banks. That is something that's been relatively consistent. Uh, a bit more optimistic on margins. We saw sequential improvements in margins during the third quarter. And given the monetary policy rate hike earlier in the year, which banks have tried to pass on, and also some of the banks starting to implement their risk pricing models, I think we will see a slight uptick in margins, especially again, given the fact that the banks, some of the banks have also gone quite heavily on T-bills, yields of 50 to 16%. So margin uptick, side margin uptick, nothing too significant. And then interest revenue growth, again, like Davis mentioned, fee income growth should continue to remain strong. But at the same time, you might see a slight normalization in, in trading income. But overall, the bottom line will remain under pressure because OPEX growth, I think, will continue to remain that strong given the, the macroeconomic fundamentals we're seeing. And from a perspective, as again, Davis mentioned it a few times, we typically do see their auditors come in the fourth quarter and ask banks to bump up their, their provisions. So I think that will continue to remain quite substantial. So net more of the same in Q4. Uh, from a dividend perspective, as we were talking before, I think dividends will largely remain in line with what this bank supported last year. So again, when you look at the dividend yields for this year, almost banks doesn't look that attractive relative to what is being offered in the 91 day. Uh,
don't have any more questions from my end. So I'll give you guys maybe give your closing thoughts. And of course, to also tell people where they can find you and the various organizations where you work with. So you can start with you, Ronak. No, thanks once again for having me. As, as I mentioned before, it's been a tough few quarters for the banks. I do think it will continue to remain tough, or at least for the next quarter or so. But pending the macro environment and global environment, I think we should start to see a turnaround from a valuation perspective, from a profitability and valuation perspective, despite the bank's earnings remaining under pressure. The ROE still remain pretty decent and arguably when you look at it from a valuation perspective, you could argue that a lot of the bad news has been more than priced it. But yes, the environment is tough, but I think you could argue that the banks are starting to look pretty attractive at this level, especially if things will start to get better to Q or 24 onwards. Yeah, that being said, thank you very much once again for having me and looking to keep the conversation going next quarter in terms of where to find me, as I mentioned, uh, we do have an office in Nairobi. So for those of us who want to come and have a more detailed chat with us, just come and find us at Orbit Place and on Chiramo Road. Thank you so much. Davis, maybe you can also tell people where you work and where they can find you in your closing talk. Yes. So I work at Sterling Capital. You can find us at Delta Annex. So where Delta Towers is in Westlands, so that's on the fifth floor. So as far as the market is concerned, we've just some closing thoughts. Indeed, banks have been coming under quite a bit of pressure. The market on the whole has not been doing quite well. This has been a trend for quite a long period of time. And as interest rates remain elevated, the opportunity cost associated with investing in stocks is quite high. So while as analysts, we will give you the, those realities that the fundamentals remain strong, that translating into, how do I say, capital appreciation on your maybe stock holdings, that might take a while, just considering where capital is being allocated. So largely bonds and the like. So I'd strongly encourage investors to invest for the long run. Yeah. Don't go in for the short-term gains because in this market, it's a bit difficult. Maybe focus on counters that will give you attractive dividends to at least preserve your capital through the volatility you're likely to experience as interest rates continue rising. But eventually, the gains on holding stocks should be quite material in the long run, considering how cheap they are at this point in time. So I'd say that in closing. I think that's very important. So it's always good to look at the long run in terms of investing because the short run is always quite volatile and perhaps things even out in the long run. So I think that's very important as you invest also. And of course, our stock market has been pretty much a lane for the past couple of years. I think the best way to get income right now is mostly through dividends. So a dividend play would do you a lot of good if you're looking for general investment advice. But always also conduct your own research. Look out for risks. Uh, there are always risks. I think the other day I just noticed that Nigeria wanted banks to increase their capital base and wants them to restrict in terms of payment, at least for now. Uh, so I think those are the kind of risks that you always uh, find in banks. Uh, so it's good to always uh, look out for those. But thank you, Ronak. And thank you, for Davis, for joining us. Thank you all for making time this evening to come and uh, be with us so that you can listen in on this conversation. Keep checking us on our timeline. Join us on Telegram. We are also on our WhatsApp channel. So you can always check all those links on our page. You can always share with us. And we also have a weekly newsletter on Substack, which you can also check out. Also check out our memes on Sunday. So we'll definitely be there to make you laugh as we give you business news and uh, all that. See you again next week for another edition of Mongo Spaces.